Welcome to No Filter, I'm your host, Anna Kasparian. And today's one of those days. We are going to dedicate the entire episode of this show to an interview with Ben Burgess. Ben Burgess is an author, he actually just published a book titled Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. He is a regular guest on the Michael Brooks Show, otherwise known as TMBS. And he also teaches at Georgia State University Perimeter College. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I have so many topics I want to discuss with you, including your view on UBI, especially the mm-hmm. universal basic income proposal by, you know, by a Democratic candidate. People feel very passionately <laughs> about that. But before we get to what I had prepared to talk about, there was some news yeah. that broke today, and I really wanted to get your thoughts. So. Turns out that the Workers Party here in the United States has decided to endorse Elizabeth Warren over Bernie Sanders. Back in 2016, they had endorsed Bernie Sanders, but this time around, they've decided to go with Warren. Now, the national director of Working Families Party, his name is Maurice Mitchell, says Senator Warren knows how to kick Wall Street kleptocrats where it hurts. And she's got some truly visionary plans to make this country work for the many. We need a mass movement to make her plans a reality. And we're going to be part of that work. And they've decided, you know what, we're not gonna sit around, we're gonna go ahead and endorse someone right away and start pushing hard. What are your thoughts on all of this? Yeah, I think that's disappointing. And it's especially strange to me because one of the Working Families Party's big issues has always been uh, single payer health insurance, and uh, and Bernie is I think much clearer on that issue than Warren. She just finally put uh, a health care plan on her website, and I was just looking at it. And if you look at the part that especially disturbs me about that about mental health care, uh, you know that makes it sound like that would be separate from whatever sort of Medicare for all thing she's endorsing. She talks about Medicare for all. And then she talks about affordable mental health care. And usually when I hear that word affordable about health care, I start worrying because that's uh, that's kind of the the buzzword for, you know, it's still in the market system. Uh, you know, we're just gonna try to do some sort of cost control thing. Uh, I have to be honest, I hadn't seen that she had put out her proposal for health care. I genuinely, and, and I'm naive, I genuinely thought that she was really signing on to Medicare for all. There were some shaky moments where her language wasn't as as blunt as I would have liked it to be. But lately she made it appear as though she unequivocally supported Medicare for all, but I guess that's not the case. Yeah, or or at the, at the very least that, uh, I mean, that the plan makes it sound like whatever sort of Medicare for all plan that she's endorsing might not include uh, mental health, which I think would be a really worrying omission. But I also think that like on an even deeper level than that, like let's say, let's say she is like all in now. On, on Medicare for all. The fact that it took that there was this kind of rocky road to get there that like, you know, that she had to kind of be pressured on this in 2019 is itself worrying because I don't see how we're getting like Medicare for all achieving that involves going up against these vested interests that are so powerful. I don't see how we're gonna achieve that without somebody leading the charge who's like a thousand percent committed to it. And if you just kind of came on board and and there's still maybe a little ambiguity around the edges, I just don't see how that could possibly be as good a bet for getting there than somebody who has been saying exactly the same things about this since the 1970s. You know, Warren has been 
communicating quite a bit with some of the more establishment or centrist members of the Democratic Party lately. I feel as though she's trying to straddle both lines or or both portions of the Democratic Party, the the progressives and then the more establishment individuals within the party. I'm actually shocked that she didn't see how much of a failure that was when it came to Kamala Harris's initial strategy. This is a really bad idea. And I mean, look, for me, and everyone's different. I wanna be clear about that. I don't want anyone to feel like I'm judging them based on the candidate they choose. But for me, an individual who does not support Medicare for all is no deal for me. Like I, that is my, I guess if you wanna call it a purity test, it's a purity test. But we need an actual movement. And what I find fascinating is you have Maurice Mitchell, again, he's the national director of Working Families Party. He says, well, we wanna support someone who's for a movement. But it seems as though Elizabeth Warren is kind of, you know, backtracking and, and pushing for a little bit of incremental change. Whereas the candidate they supported back in 2016 is all about a movement. Yeah, he's and he's always been all about a movement, and he understands that that movement is a movement for something, but it's also a movement against something, which is the democratic establishment. I don't understand how you can have any hope of achieving any of these things that candidates like Sanders and Warren talk about if you don't, if you don't see who's standing in the way very clearly. And it seems like um, like Sanders has been kind of naming that enemy consistently for years. Whereas you know Warren, yeah, as you say, she just did a meeting with Hillary Clinton. She has a uh, she's been sending all these messages to the Democratic establishment. You know that I can kind of work with you, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's kind of always been her strategy. If you look at like what happened with the Consumer Protection Agency and all that to sort of align herself with that kind of Clinton Obama establishment wing and hope that she could convince them to do really progressive reforms and to like really you know kind of go all in on that and that's never going to happen because you know we all kind of know that the you know the establishment wing of the Democratic Party is aligned with you know with corporate America and they are part of the problem if you don't see them as part of the problem I don't see how you're going to build this movement to overcome them So I wanna talk a little bit about how this vote happened and the lack of transparency that we're now experiencing by the Working Families Party. So according to the New York Times, the vote among tens of thousands of party members and national committee leaders resulted in a commanding majority for Ms. Warren. A party spokesman said she received more than 60% of the votes on the first ballot. However, the national committee leaders, 56 people, held 50% of the voting power with party members accounting for another 50%. Several Sanders supporters called for the Working Families Party to release the full vote totals, which it has declined to do. What do you think about that? Yeah, that sounds that sounds worrying. So like that the uh, sounds like the Working Families Party has like some equivalent of super delegates. You know mm-hmm. that there's the uh, that you know if if more than fifty six percent of the voting power is held by these people, so it's not really one person one vote. Uh, which also makes sense because one thing I found really striking in two thousand and sixteen was that. If you look at unions that endorsed Sanders versus unions that endorsed Clinton or grassroots organizations like Democracy for America that endorsed Sanders, pretty much all of the organizations that let people vote ended up going for Sanders. And yeah, I would be very curious to know like 
if they've got some kind of wacky voting system where you know party leaders control a certain amount of votes and it's not just one person one vote mm-hmm. i want to know what the actual votes are yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. Well, we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we are gonna talk about Yang's UBI universal basic income proposal. And hopefully we'll have some time left to also discuss worker co-ops. We'll be right back. Welcome back to No Filter. I'm here with Ben Burgess, author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. So Ben, yesterday, not yesterday, last week, I should say, I put together a segment doing a deep dive into Andrew Yang's universal basic income policy. Now, I hope I was clear in letting the audience know I'm not necessarily against UBI, but I am against the way he would fund it and implement it. But before I get to those details, I do wanna get your thoughts on his proposal and whether or not maybe some of the critics are being unfair to him. I don't think they are, but then again, I've also been one of those critics. Uh, I think that if he's right that there is going to be this big wave of uh, of automation caused unemployment, then his answer is just manifestly not good enough. You know, I agree with you. I'm not against all forms of UBI, uh, especially ones that were paid uh, for in ways that really redistributed wealth from the top to the bottom rather than from the bottom to the bottom uh, with the VAT. But I also think. Um, that look, if somebody is going to be out of a job and they're going to have trouble finding a new job because of automation, then $12,000 is clearly not a good enough answer. And it's also his answer to everything. Like in the debate before this last one, he said that the uh, the solution to cl- his solution to climate change was that if people had $1,000 a month, they could move to higher ground. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> that answer, it's actually pretty stunning how little attention that answer got. That was in my opinion, a shockingly bad answer to the ramifications of climate change. You know, but you're right, he does refer to his UBI program as a solution for almost everything. And then lately he's been promoting democracy dollars, which I have not done a deep dive into, so I don't feel comfortable either criticizing it or supporting it yet. But that's something that I wanna hear more about because it has to do with campaign finance and creating more of an equal system for voters here. Now, let's talk a little bit more about the VAT tax because while I agree with you that automation is something that he should probably start finding a solution for, um, you know, he does tend to say, look, this is the solution. We're just gonna give people some money and everything's gonna be fine. But it's actually not gonna be $12,000 a year if you consider the way it's funded. So can you talk about the value added tax? Yeah, and it's worth underlining that even if it was $12,000 a year, uh, that's a awfully little money to ask people to actually live on. Right. Especially if people who are getting disability have to choose between that that and their disability checks. Uh, so yeah, the VAT tax, because it taxes every transaction, uh, then it's it's something that, well, you know, essentially it's going to have a lot of the same features as like a sales tax. That's mm-hmm. that's something that is actually going to um, tax more from people at the bottom because people at the bottom uh, spend more of their income. And in the uh, deep dive that you did last week, I thought actually a really nice point that you made that's worth kind of underlining and circling a couple times is that you know, Yang's answer to this is, oh, we'll like fix it in the details, right? We'll go into the details and we'll make sure that certain kinds of products and services, the VAT tax is gonna be, you know, bigger if they're luxury items and smaller if it's uh and smaller when, you know, when they're they're gonna be common staple items. But 
that seems to really misunderstand how politics work because when it comes to like little like big broad sweeping policies i think that's where ordinary people actually have a chance to like have some meaningful input mm-hmm. when it comes to like negotiations about details that's what like corporate lobbyists love that right i mean because that's where they really have a chance to undermine good legislation to yeah. you know to get their you know to like go in and like reshape things in their image and so if you're saying yeah this would be pretty regressive but we'll fix it in the details that seems exactly backwards to me Exactly. I mean, look, the average American worker is not going to get a seat at that table to negotiate the the finer details of this policy. So you really have to think about how, you know, and and I'm I I give him the benefit of the doubt. I think he has good intentions. I sure. think it's fascinating that, you know, any type of critique because I'm open to this plan. I just think that it could be implemented in a better way. But any type of critique usually leads to this onslaught of angry people who think you're just attacking him personally. But no, I think that it is important to work out these details right now and make sure that this is something that is gonna work out for the average American worker. I'm gonna switch gears and talk a little bit about worker co-ops. This is more of a self-indulgent discussion because I'm kind of exploring you know, different forms of governments and how our economy can be improved. And so I've heard you talk a little bit about worker co-ops. Can you explain mm-hmm. for the audience how they work? Sure. So a worker co-op is a um, a business that is owned and uh, and managed by the employees. So there's no, there's no division between the employer and the employees. But if it's a very small one, you might have like meetings where everybody you know like everybody who works at the cooperatively owned restaurant might make certain key decisions. The bigger it is, like any other form of democracy, the more indirect it's going to be. You might have elected management. Uh, and the really interesting thing about co-ops, right? This is like right now, the kind of economy that we have right now, it's a tiny little slice of it. But the interesting thing is that once they actually get going, they seem to last about as long and do about as well as regular businesses. Mm-hmm. It's just that the you know the death rate isn't that much different. It's the birth rate that's just like way, way lower. Uh, I think because of the, you know, obviously uneven distribution of starter capital, most people aren't really financially equipped to start a business. Uh, and then, of course, it's much harder to attract investors if you can't give them an ongoing share of the business as a uh, as a return. Um, but it's but there are some pretty successful models. So just mm-hmm. real quick, one of the uh, the sort of big one that people always talk about. Is there's the Mondragon Corporation in Spain, which is a big federation of cooperative businesses in the Basque region of Spain that's existed for several decades, and at this point it has like 85,000 members. Wow. Uh, and it's not, you know, it's not perfect. There are problems we can talk about, but there are. Um, but one thing that really jumps out at me in connection with talking about Yang and the UBI is that they've got a really good system uh, for. You know, retraining people who are in one part of you know who are in one part of the corporation, who have um, you know like when their jobs become redundant to like sort of uh, matchmake them with like other cooperatives within the federation, uh, so they don't lose their job, which is the kind of policy that I think you're more likely to get when uh, they when workers have the kind of input in the decision making of the firm that they're just not going to have in a regular corporation. 
So it's fascinating because when I think of worker co-ops, I always think of it in the context of small businesses. Maybe a business <laughs> like the Young Turks, would a workers co-op work in this type of environment? And an issue that comes up a lot, and I'm gonna be completely honest with what my own biases are, is that it sounds a little utopian. It sounds like there's a lot of emphasis on everyone being willing to work equally, work hard, work for the greater good of the company. But we all know that in various work environments, not all workers are built the same. Sure. Some people might take advantage, some people might not wanna pull their weight. So how does it work in that type of situation? Cuz I am concerned that there's a little bit of this, and it's a completely different ideology obviously, but like sure. this libertarian utopian ideology that, that makes right. me worried about the same type of outlook on the left. Like that's that's a really good thing to think about because Something that constantly bothers me when I'm arguing with libertarians mm -hmm. is that for every problem that you can point out, they have some sort of totally speculative, totally unverifiable explanation of how like in a really, really free market, you wouldn't have that problem because X, Y, and Z would happen, right? right. And then, um, of course, there's no way of checking it because anything you could ever bring up, say, well, no, 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 we don't have a really, really free market. <laughs> we have just, you know, that's, you know, that's different, right? Right. Uh, and so, of course, I don't want to play that game, right? I don't want to just do the socialist version of that and mm -hmm. say that, like, you know, uh, for everything, you know, for everything that you could come up with, it would ever be a problem. I have like some, you know, speculative fix about how it would work. I mean, I think that you are, um, you know, that that of course, right? Different people are going to put in different thing amounts of of work. Uh, I think that there is. There is some potential for the kind of free rider problem that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, another problem, frankly, that like I, you know, like I'm sympathetic towards because I've spent way too much of my life in faculty meetings that I'm never going to get back. Is <laughs> that like most people hate being in meetings, oh, and yeah. the more democracy you have at work, right? The more you know, the more meetings you have to go to. So there's definitely a trade-off there. But uh, people but also hate others making decisions for them, and that's you know the top-down approach we have in America. Absolutely, yeah. And so what I would say is that like it's not that none of these problems are real, but I would say that if you actually like instead of sort of doing the speculation, you know, it's like, oh, in my perfect utopia, here's how it works. If you actually look at the track record of real life co-ops, uh, like Mondragon in Spain or Cooperation Jackson in this country, uh, then I think that you can see that even though uh, co-ops don't have the same like degree of economic inequality, like Mondragon uh, mandates that the most, the biggest gap that you can have between any like anybody, even at like the highest management level, and any other worker is less than nine to one. Which mm. you know, of course, for the sake of comparison, uh, in the um, in the United States, like private sector, it's uh, 287 to one. Right. Yeah. Uh, but um, but despite the fact that you don't have more of these financial incentives, it does seem to be the case that they last about as long as other companies. Uh, they do, you know, they do pretty well. In some ways, they're actually more productive because people are managing themselves, so you don't have to like sort of put all this effort into kind of, you know, policing people to get to them to do things that they don't want to do. And it's it's not perfect, you know. A bottom line, it's still work, you know, even mm -hmm. if you do have a democratic say at it. But I think it's a lot better. All right, I would love to have you back on to have a longer discussion about this. We do have to go to break now, but when we come back, we're just gonna end on a fun note. And I apologize, we're gonna talk about Jesse Lee Peterson, just briefly. <laughs> Fair we'll be right back.
Welcome back to No Filter. I hope you all know by now that Ben Burgess, our guest, is an incredibly smart guy. You should check him out on The Michael Brooks Show, check him out on social media. And Ben, you went on Jesse Lee Peterson's program to have a discussion. And much like other progressives who go on his show, discussions are usually not had because he's a child. I'm gonna play a little sound and then I wanna get your thoughts. Man, you're running like a beta male. Are you a beta male? Beta! <laughs> beta male! enough to believe that the phrase beta male means anything. You are a beta male. I'm surprised you, well, not surprised you're a leftist. You, <laughs> if you were not a beta male, you wouldn't be a leftist. Yeah, because because a sign of being secure in your masculinity. No, 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 you're beta. And say, oh, oh, I'm not a beta male, I'm not a beta male. You know, you're a beta male. Beta! Be ridiculous, Jesse. Beta, let me. The fact that you ben. feel to resort to this nonsense. Let me ask you, Ben. 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 Shows ben. that you know that you don't have a leg to stand on in the argument. Ben. If you had an argument, you'd make it. You don't have an argument for your views. Ben. So instead of making it, you rely on nonsensical taunts about the male. Ben. Ben. disguise your arguments as questions. It's pathetic. Ben, ben. where does ben. logic come from? I just look. It was entertaining, but I, I want to know whether I want to know whether you were frustrated. You looked frustrated during that exchange, but you had to have known what you were getting yourself into. Uh, to be honest, not really. So I got uh, a like when I got the initial invite from his producer. I didn't. Uh, I don't really know who Jesse Lee Peterson was. Like I looked him up a little bit beforehand. It's like okay, yeah, he's got some crazy views. I'm sure it's going to be like a. You know, like it's all right. So this is not going to be a friendly interview, whatever. But like, I'm game. But uh, <laughs> for better or for worse, it's probably much funnier because I I didn't know what I was getting into, but I I really didn't. I mean, it's amazing because he never has any argument. If someone uh, either catches him in a lie or proves him wrong with actual statistics and facts, his only response is usually amazing. But I <laughs> I just I was so amused by his childish behavior. And look, you you have such important discussions. Um, anyone who wants to learn more uh, from Ben Burgess, again, please check him out. The debunk segments on uh, Michael Brooks's show is amazing. Uh, you did a debunk on higher education and how this notion that it leads to upward mobility isn't necessarily true. Lots of great topics. Ben, it was a pleasure. Thank you for coming on the program. Thank you so much. And thank you for watching No Filter. Check us out on social media at No Filter. TYT. And you can also leave us a five star rating if you like the show. That will help to get us featured wherever you get your podcast. Thank you again for watching. And remember, never be afraid to speak your truth with no filter.